Turn, please, first to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. After we read this, we'll turn together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 26 to 32. Psalm 1. This, too, is the Word of God, so let's give it our reverent attention. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous The way of the wicked will perish. And now in chapter 23 of Luke's gospel, we find the Lord declared innocent and then sentenced to be turned over to his accusers anyway. Verse 26, when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Kurene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, <laughs> we pray that you would enlighten our minds by your Spirit so that we might take, uh, we might be able to make sense of this episode in history that seems at many levels to be so senseless. Yet you work all things according to the counsel of your will for your glory and our good. So we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It's the world turned upside down. On the heels of his exoneration from any crime whatsoever, the thrice-pronounced verdict, not guilty, still ringing in everybody's ears, everybody who was there, not guilty. Without further delay, a military detail of four Roman soldiers leads our Lord Jesus Christ out of the governor's praetorium, outside the walls of the city, not to his own home, not to the place of release from custody. They lead him to the place of his execution. Like a spotless lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ is led away to slaughter. And spotless he was. And spotless he is. Anyone there can see it. Even Tiberius Caesar, who was not there, even Tiberius Caesar had just spoken in the person of his provincial governor, Pontius Pilate. Not guilty. That's the official verdict. Given all the evidence, no other verdict is possible under Roman law. Caesar has spoken. And what does Caesar say of Jesus? Not guilty. But Caiaphas, the high priest with the Jewish Sanhedrin, had also spoken. The Sanhedrin spoken. Whether he's guilty or not, this man Jesus has to die. Not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, today, this very morning, this man has to go, has to die. Because if he doesn't die, Governor Pilate, if he doesn't die, then we the Sanhedrin are going to make very sure that the news reaches Caesar in record time. We'll find a way to get it to him. And Caesar won't be very pleased, will he? When he finds out that you, Governor Pilate, released into the general population a man, a Jew, who on no authority but his own claimed to be king. And so even pronouncing a verdict of not guilty and doing this multiple times, Pilate caves. He decrees that the demand of the Jews be granted, and he delivers Jesus, Jesus the innocent, over to their will. Now, between the governor's praetorium and the place of execution, along the highway just north of the city of Jerusalem, Luke shares three quick snapshots of people and events along the route that's come to be known to history as the Via Dolorosa, the Road of Sorrows. In this first snapshot, verse 26, we find a man just as completely uninvolved, as perfectly disinterested in the proceedings of that morning as any man visiting out of town might be. Simon has absolutely nothing to do with this. 
we see the Roman officer in charge of the details seizing this man and pressing him into service, forcing him to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way, forcing him to carry, at the very least, the transverse horizontal part of the cross. So I'd like you to imagine a a six-foot length, maybe seven feet, at least a six-foot length of timber, roughly eight inches square in cross-section. Think of a six-foot length of railroad tie, if that helps. By this point, even the carpenter from Nazareth faints under the dead weight of it. He's collapsed on the road. He'd been carrying it by himself. He'd been carrying it. He carried it much farther, certainly, than you or I could carry it were you and I in his physical condition. But by this point on the road to Golgotha, he's not taking another step, not under this load. Under the weight of it, he can go no further. It is simply humanly impossible. And so he is collapsed in the road. Now this man, Simon, as I said before, has absolutely nothing to do with the goings-on earlier that morning at the Praetorium. Nothing to do with it. He's just a stranger who providentially happens along coming in from the countryside. He'd been staying that holiday week at the Motel 6, maybe, out in the suburbs. It's mid-morning on Friday. He's left the motel, he's on vacation, and he's heading back into the city for a good breakfast. Or whatever it was. Whatever it was that happened to put him there in that particular place and time. No one there has ever met him before. Certainly we haven't. Simon's just another Jewish pilgrim who traveled all the way from Kurene on the north coast of Africa just to observe the Passover in Jerusalem. He's a guy on vacation. And he's drafted unexpectedly to do some very heavy lifting to a very sad, very dark place. And then, by the very next verse, he's gone. We never see him again on the pages of Scripture. At least we don't see him directly on the pages of Scripture. More on that later. That's the first snapshot. I want now to jump ahead to the third snapshot in verse 32. Because most of our business today is going to be with what we find in the second Here in the third snapshot, we find two other men following Jesus on the road to the place named apparently for its natural rock formation that suggested, to someone anyway, suggested the likeness of a huge gaping skull. Not quite a cave, but a huge gaping skull. Natural rock formation. Because of this likeness, this natural likeness in the rocks, in Hebrew they called the place Golgotha, the skull. To the Romans it was called Calvarius, Calvary. 
And like Jesus, these two are making their way to Calvary, the place of execution. And like him, each of them is surrounded by four armed Roman guards. But unlike Jesus, these two are actual criminals. Dangerous men. Matthew and Mark both call them robbers. Luke calls them literally evildoers. They are evildoers. They're bad men, very bad. And on that point, they are just as unlike Jesus as men can be. We'll hear about these two men a little farther on in the chapter. But let's look together for a moment at the picture in the middle. Not the, thir- not the first, not the third, but the second one. The picture in the middle. The one we find in verses 27 to 31. Here we see the Lord Jesus back on his feet again. Simon's relieved him of the weight of the cross and Jesus is back on his feet again. But from this point forward, according to Mark's gospel, from this point forward, Jesus has to actually be supported as he goes. Not carried, but someone has to help steady him as he shuffles along. Around him are these four Roman guards. Unless they've pressed someone else into doing the duty, one of those guards carries the sign on which the prisoner's crime is written. Then once they get to the place of execution, that sign would then be affixed to the cross above the prisoner. That was the common Roman practice, first in order to shame the one being crucified, to shame him, and then also to deter onlookers from even thinking about perpetrating the same crime. See the sufferings of these men? Let that be a lesson to you. That idea. That was the Roman idea about putting the placard above the crucified. Don't be like this. So here we have, in this procession along the Via Dolorosa, we have the fainting, faltering Jesus. And behind Jesus comes Simon Simon the unwilling, carrying the prisoner's cross. Trailing along behind him are these two condemned malefactors and their military escorts. But then following after the whole dismal procession is this great crowd of people. Onlookers, that's all they are, onlookers. Now, why do you suppose there'd be a great crowd of people following three men on their way to execution? Three men, most of them, the vast majority of them, I'm sure, didn't even know. And that's not a rhetorical question I'm asking. I really mean it very sincerely. I wonder why it is. Why do people do this? Because really, what is there to see? 
Have you ever thought about that? Why all the fascination, the human fascination with death and dying? I've sometimes wondered what drew people to public executions back in the time they were public in this country. The old photos I've seen, maybe you've seen them too, old photos of public hangings in our own country a century ago. Those photos tended to put the gallows, the town gallows, in a very conspicuous central place. And then all around, you'd see these swarms of hundreds of people who came out to see, came out to watch. Now, back in a godlier age than ours, some local citizens, no doubt, were out there uh, to pray and to provide whatever comfort they could in a situation like that. Some, probably a lot more, were just curious and therefore they showed up, and some perhaps morosely preoccupied with human death and suffering. I don't know why they are, but many are. And today it's not public executions, but Hollywood trying to fill that perverse human need for fire and blood and explosions and death and disaster. Why, I don't know. So anyway, back to the story. Strung along the Via Dolorosa, here's this great crowd of people following. But then what Luke does is he, he after panning the whole crowd, he zooms in from the great crowd to focus on one particular group of women mourning and lamenting him. Who are these women? Are these the professional mourners often seen at funerals of the day? Or are these perhaps women who actually knew Jesus and loved Jesus and understood what a perfect travesty of justice this execution is? Who are these women? I think the answer to that question has to be found in what he says to them. First, he calls them not his daughters, as, for instance, back in chapter 8, he'd tenderly called that sick woman in Capernaum who in faith reached out to touch the hem of his garment. He calls them not daughters. He calls them not daughters of God or daughters of the kingdom. These aren't his beloved, faithful daughters and friends. Not his disciples. They are daughters of Jerusalem. That's all they are. They represent the rightful heirs of the city and its hypocritical ways. Remember with me back to chapter 19. Back when he first entered Jerusalem, just a week earlier, he wept over the city, didn't he? He'd spoken on that occasion of the city's coming destruction for its faithlessness and the destruction of her children within her, and he wept over them. Genuine tears he wept. And now a week later, they're weeping over him. But this isn't genuine lamentation we're hearing. 
This isn't the cry of the brokenhearted. These are the tears of the professional mourners. The tears and loud lamentation of those who scarcely even know him. Just like the city he came so richly to bless, they scarcely know him. And he turns to them. I want you to notice that in verse 28. I want you to bear in mind his failing, faltering physical condition and notice that. He stops in his tracks and on wobbly legs, ready to buckle under him again, he turns to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they'll say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? Which is an interesting expression. How are we to understand this last line? Well, dear ones, let's remember that this bloodied, fainting prisoner is actually a man steeped from earliest boyhood in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are Jesus' compass, his destination, and the wind in his sails all through his life. Even as he comes into the world, according to Hebrews chapter 10, even as he comes into the world, he says in the words of the 40th Psalm, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The Psalms. They're what Jesus sang when, as a boy, he worshipped his heavenly Father as he was sitting there in the Nazareth synagogue sitting there with his parents and his younger siblings and friends and neighbors. These are the songs that he sang every Sabbath day in the synagogue. And then later on as a man, he sang them in Capernaum in in the synagogue there. That's what he sang in the home. That's what he sang as he worked on the job site as a carpenter. He grew to full manhood singing the Psalms. They shaped his human character. Very soon, in fact, after this, a psalm would come to mind and to his lips as he hung there suspended on nails, dying a criminal's death on a cross. For over 30 years, he framed his whole life and ministry in terms of the Psalms. So much so that it's often to the Psalms that we should turn when trying to understand a difficult teaching or phrase that Jesus uses. It might be uncommon to us. It might sound strange to our ears. We are more than uh, likely to find the cues to that and the clues to understanding it 
in the book of Psalms. Such is the case here, I think, in verse 31. Whatever could Jesus have meant when he spoke of the green tree? If they do this in the green tree or to the green tree, what are we to think of the dry? The answer, it seems, lies again in the Psalms, the inspired hymnal that the Apostle Paul calls the Word of Christ. The book of Psalms opens like this. We've read it here already this morning. That man is blessed who does not walk where wicked men advise, nor stand where sinners meet, nor sit where porn scorners pose as wise. Instead, he is the one who makes the Lord's law his delight, and in that law he meditates by day and in the night. He's like a deeply planted tree beside a water stream, which in its season bears its fruit, whose leaves stay fresh and green. Beloved, Jesus is that man. Jesus is the man of Psalm 1. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the green tree of whom God's covenant people have been singing for over 3,000 years. He's the one blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands not in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He never has. And being the same yesterday, today, and forever, he never will. He's the one man who above every other man takes delight in the law of the Lord, whose human life and character was shaped by meditating upon it. So if they inflict this punishment upon their own Christ, the green tree, the living one, cut down without cause in the vigorous prime of life and fruitfulness, if they do this to the green tree, then what fate might be anticipated for the dry? The dry tree, unacquainted with the living waters of God's own word and spirit, the withered tree, the fruitless tree, the dead tree, the tree poisoned by centuries of sucking in the killing waters of mere human tradition. John the Baptist knew the coming fate of that dry tree. He knew it before they killed him. The axe, he said, John the Baptist said, the axe is laid to the root of that tree. Jesus is speaking of the faithless, unrepentant, hard-hearted, stubborn nation, Israel. If they do this to the green tree, what's to become of Israel? What's to become of her? What divine judgments to be expected for those sinners, those chief priests, rulers, and elders, sitting where scorners pose as wise? What's to become of religious impostors who lengthen their tassels 
as they devour widows' houses, who broaden their phylacteries, who love their long flowing robes and the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplace. If they kill the Christ, what shall God do to them? And the first psalm answers that question too, doesn't it? Faithless Israel, regicidal, Christ-killing Israel, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. And just as he'd been saying all week long from the very first day that he entered the city of Jerusalem to his daily teaching in the temple, to the Olivet Discourse with his disciples alone, on up to this very moment on the Via Dolorosa, he says, by no means is this generation going to pass away before God sends the Roman armies to surround Jerusalem, to starve the city, to breach her walls, to kill her children to level the ancient institutions and drive the faithless nation out of her promised inheritance forever. We read it in Deuteronomy 6 earlier. If you don't obey me, if you go after other things, other gods, I, says God, will wipe you off the face of the earth. As in fact he did 40 years later when secular history records the extremities, the extremities to which three and a half years of siege and starvation brought this city and nation. Flavius Josephus, the Jewish turncoat who was then working for Rome, Josephus was on hand in Jerusalem that summer of AD 70 to record the fall of Jerusalem and he records that fall in terms that are too gruesome, too graphic for me to relate here. But when you read Josephus, you see what color they lend to these words of Jesus. On that day, women indeed counted themselves blessed never to have borne children because of what was happening to the children all around them. Well, our sermon today is very dark, very distressing, but I don't want us to end on that note. Because there's more here that's just under the surface, even after the most terrible storm a rainbow might sometimes be seen. As I said earlier of that third snapshot, we'll meet those two malefactors again. And we do, just a few lines down the page. If not next week, then the week following. We'll meet those two again. But of the first snapshot, that of Simon, the out-of-town vacationer, forced to carry the Lord's cross, of him, we never hear again at least not directly. 
But the New Testament does offer a few tantalizing hints regarding the subsequent history of Simon's family. Simon, you remember, came to Jerusalem as a Passover pilgrim. At the feasts, Jews like Simon came from all over the civilized world, and for one supremely inconvenient hour, during that Passover week, for one supremely inconvenient hour, on a Friday morning, while vacationing, this Jewish man was pressed into service carrying another man's cross. The cross of a man who was, of course, on his way to die. Simon apparently had some meat on his bones and broad shoulders, or else he wouldn't have been drafted to do the job that he was called upon to do. He's a man with some muscle on him, Simon is. Good for carrying heavy loads, but he also, in addition to muscle, he also has eyes to see. He's perfectly able to read the charge against this man, whose cross he carries, and the sign said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Simon has eyes. He also has ears to hear what this man, the prisoner, says. Words you don't expect to hear from the mouth of a man who's unjustly condemned and about to die because there's no vindictiveness in Jesus' words. There's no bitterness, there's no fear, there's no pleading for his life, no whining, no groveling. Instead, Jesus simply warns his hearers of things to come. And Simon's on hand to see this man die to hear the words this man spoke from the cross. And then, having seen and heard it all, when the time comes, he leaves Jerusalem, goes back to his home, to his family in North Africa. And beyond all doubt, he tells his family about that particular Friday morning on the road just outside Jerusalem. It's not Luke, but it's Mark, who in his parallel account gives us a little more about this mysterious man, Simon. In chapter 15, verse 21, Mark writes, And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Kurene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. That's what Mark says. Now, why would Mark include this little family detail if the names Alexander and Rufus had no relevance to those first hearing his gospel? Well, of course, Mark included that little detail about Simon's family because those names did ring a bell with his first generation of Christian readers. Those names brought to mind the flesh-and-blood Christian brothers, the names designated. The names Alexander and Rufus might not mean much to us 20 centuries later, 
But those names actually meant something to the church of the first century. They meant something solid and sweet. Something that savored of Jesus Christ, the crucified, now risen, ascended, and reigning. And of course, anyone named Alexander in first century Greco-Roman society becomes as quickly lost to history as anyone named Bill or John would be today. There are just too many of them running around. Not so Rufus. In all my life, I have met precisely one man named Rufus. In all my years. And on the pages of the New Testament, there's only one other place this name appears. It's in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. On the very last page where Paul sends his greetings to the Christian brothers and sisters living in Rome, in that 16th chapter, the 13th verse, Paul writes, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. I hope you ask questions of what you read in the Bible. <clears throat> questions like, so what was it that made Rufus such a choice man in the Lord? Why were he and his mother so dear to the Apostle Paul? And of course, it's impossible to say with any certainty. But we know a little about their husband and father. Simon was a Jew with a story to tell. And tell it he did. He told it to his family. A first-hand account of what he saw and heard that Friday morning when Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews was hoisted up and flanked by two notorious criminals died on the cross that he himself, Simon of Kurene, carried. So what about you? Do you have a first-hand story of grace to tell your children? A first-hand story of grace abounding to feed and nourish their souls so that they might grow strong and green, planted in the courts of the Lord. Do you have a story for them? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, a grace abounding in ways that are public and great and magnificent, but grace that also trickles in to the little private dark areas of life that trickles into homes and the stories that parents tell their children. Pray, Heavenly Father, that in these stories, in these tales that we tell, not only of the Bible, but of our experience of this grace the Bible displays, we pray that these living waters 
might come to take up residence in and around our children as they grow, that they might grow to be trees like thriving palms planted in the court of the Lord. We thank you for the many little known and completely unknown saints who have gone before us, who've heard this same gospel and responded to it in faith and their lives were changed. Thank you that you offer us the same grace thousands of years later, far distant geographically. Yet we thank you that the word of God stands forever, that Jesus Christ to whom that word testifies is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be glorified in these words and our reflections upon them. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.